0: the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin.
1: Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Freedom Forum Radio is for you, faithful listeners, no matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about about freedom, individual freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it.
2: You're listening to part three of this very special interview with Michael Meheran, right here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We pick up right now where we left off last week. Um, The next argument that you'll hear is that it didn't work and that we almost had a war over this tariff. And to some degree, that is true. As we move through the history of it, South Carolina passed an ordinance of nullification. The president at the time was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson said, you can't do that. Uh, we're going to force you to comply. He was ready to send troops into South Carolina. South Carolina was mustering troops. He was ready, they were ready to fight the federal troops over it. So there was certainly a precipitation of a crisis at this point. Now, the next part of the story that those that are opposed to nullification will tell you is that South Carolina backed down. That proves that nullification didn't work. Well, they only get part of the story right. South Carolina did kind of back down, but they didn't back down because they were being threatened. They backed down because there was a compromise that was brokered by Henry Clay, which offered some tariff relief for the southern states. It wasn't everything that they wanted, but it did give them at least part of what they wanted. So at that point, they did relent. They did agree with the compromise. They got a little bit of what they wanted. And then, on good measure, they nullified the FORCE Act, which was just kind of a funny in-your-face from uh, in the South Carolina legislature. But the real lesson here is that nullification does work. Now, I'm certainly not you know, for armed res- revolution or sending troops, but you know, when people talk about that, that was really Jackson's action. Jackson was the one that was talking about, about troops. South Carolina was merely trying to defend what they believed was their their constitutional rights. But at the end of the day, they got tariff relief. So we have to say that, from a political perspective, nullification did indeed work because it did ratchet back some of that unauthorized federal power, at least in the mind of South Carolina.
1: Well, well, so I heard and I've read that actually that nullifications around the Civil War time also occurred and uh, that uh, the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin was involved uh, in a nullification effort as well.
2: That's correct. And I think probably this is the most important, the least understood, and probably one of the most inspiring uh, periods of nullification history that exists. And by and large, most Americans don't know this history, and I think that's a sad thing. In the 1850s, the federal government passed what was known as the Fugitive Slave Act, it was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. There was actually a series of Fugitive Slave Acts. Uh, most Americans are aware that in the Constitution there is a provision for the return of slaves back to their owners. It was it was placed in there as part of the compromise between the slave and free states. So there was a constitutional provision that held that if a slave escaped to a free state, that that state was obligated, uh, that the owner of the slave had the right to get his property back. That was the essence of it. The Fugitive Slave Acts were laws passed by Congress. Uh, there were several of them. Each of these laws was designed to kind of give teeth to that constitutional provision to set up a mechanism by which a slave owner could retrieve his quote-unquote property. Each of the Fugitive Slave Acts, as we move along through the early history of the United States, became more and more stringent and more and more demanding. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, in my opinion, is one of the most horrible laws that was ever passed by Congress. It basically allowed for a white person To go into a northern state Find a black person Claim ownership And drag that person back south That accused fugitive slave Had no right to testify in his own defense No right to a jury trial He had basically no um, Remedy at all He was at the mercy of the word of this white man And as you can guess You have uh, somebody that's slightly unscrupulous That figures hey I can go grab some guy and take him back, and, and now I have some property that I can own down south. You had people that were coming and taking legitimately free blacks south into slavery. I mean, it's horrible enough that, that you think about dragging somebody that's, that was escaped from slavery back, but you had people that were free, rightfully and legally, being drugged back south. Well, northern states said, you know what, this clearly is not constitutional and probably one of the most clearest, uh, it goes up there with the Sedition Act in terms of being so blatantly unconstitutional, denying a person any type of due process. And again, we see that same thing today with the NDAA, so these things tend to repeat themselves. Well, the northern states said we're not going to cooperate with these federal efforts that are basically putting our citizens at risk to being imprisoned and in slavery. And nearly all of the northern states during the 1850s passed what were known as personal liberty laws. They had different provisions in different states, but in essence, all of them created state mechanisms to block implementation of this Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, For instance, Michigan's personal liberty law guaranteed anybody accused of being a fugitive slave of a jury trial. Now... According to the Fugitive Slave Act, this was not the way it was supposed to be done. They were not supposed to get a jury trial. They were not supposed to be able to testify in their own defense. The state of Michigan said, if you think you're going to drag somebody out of our state, by golly, you are going to give them a jury trial. They put teeth in this by basically making it a crime to take somebody out of the state that was not legitimately proven to be a fugitive slave. In order to legitimately prove it, you had to give them the jury trial. It also forbid the state of Michigan for any local or state jail to be used by the fugitive slave catchers. So it denied the facilities that the federal agents needed to bring these fugitive slaves, uh, they called it, to justice. Obviously, it wasn't very just at all. Uh, Massachusetts took some even stronger measures. They basically made a provision in their personal liberty law where they said that if a state agent helps or aids a slave commission that that state agent would be subject to impeachment on basically not fulfilling his duty a lawyer that represented a slave owner was subject to being disbarred in the state of Massachusetts so all of these things which were primarily non-compliance they weren't really necessarily aggressive other than the states that did make it a crime to uh, a kidnapping crime to take Slaves that, or take people that were not slaves back south. Most of these were simple, noncompliance measures. They said, we are not going to cooperate with the federal agents. Well, federal agents need cooperation from state agents to get things done. And once the states began implementing these personal liberty laws, we saw a huge drop in the number of escaped slaves and, of course, the number of legitimately free black people shipped back south. In fact, once Massachusetts passed its personal liberty law, we've not been able to find one documented case of a prosecution under that Fugitive Slave Act. So these were extremely, extremely effective nullification measures by the northern states. They were so effective, in fact, that if you look at the South Carolina Declaration of Causes that they wrote out, to explain why they were seceding from the Union. The number one thing that they listed was northern nullification of the fugitive slave laws, and they used the word nullification in that, in that document. So it was effective. It worked. I don't think anybody can argue that it was unjust, and it is a microscope on what successful nullification can be. And I think probably the best example of nullification that we've had, at least historically. I think we're seeing equally successful nullification efforts today.
1: Well, that brings up a very interesting question. And that is, what is the difference in your mind between noncompliance and nullification? Are they the same, or are there nuanced differences?
2: Well... We've talked about this a lot internally at the Tenth Amendment Center and, and, and how to define terms. And basically, we, have, we give a very broad definition to what nullification is. And basically, our definition of nullification is any act or set of acts that has the effect of making a law null, void, or simply inoperative within a state. So we put noncompliance in the category of nullification particularly when you put it in the context of what we saw during the Fugitive Slave Acts. Those acts of noncompliance effectively nullified the Fugitive Slave Act. They made it inoperable within those states. So it does what exactly nullification is supposed to do. In the modern day, we see this movement to have legalized medical marijuana programs, or now we're even seeing the movement toward outright legalization of marijuana across the board, we view these as nullification efforts because the federal government says that marijuana is illegal all across the United States. Somehow they've found some magical power somewhere that has uh, authorized them to wage the quote-unquote war on drugs. States are saying, no, we're going to have these medical marijuana programs, whether the federal government wants us to or not. It's kind of amusing to me that you know, California, not surprisingly, was the state that really started this movement. We had the Supreme Court case in the mid-2000s, which was United States versus Raich, where the Supreme Court said, yes, we can regulate six plants grown in somebody's backyard. And did the states all of a sudden say, oh, we're not going to do this anymore? No. We had more states add on. Until today, we have 18 states with medical marijuana programs. Well, I mean, there's no teeth in these laws whatsoever. I mean, they don't stop federal agents. They don't arrest state agents. They merely set up a program in defiance of a federal uh, act. But in effect, what we are seeing is slowly over time, the nullification of the federal marijuana laws. And the more states that add on, the more nullified those federal acts are going to be. In fact, it's interesting that that we've seen some chatter from the DEA and the feds very concerned over the uh, recent results of the votes in Colorado and Washington that legalized marijuana for recreational use, they're scared to death that more states are going to get on. They realize that it's getting out of their control. So nullification can run the gamut from noncompliance, we call the, the Rosa Parks approach, simply saying no, refusing to cooperate, to more aggressive actions which would involve actually interposing, which is the word Madison used, and actually stepping in to stop the, the federal acts. And that would be doing things like arresting federal agents. We've seen some, some legislation proposed that would actually uh, either fine or subject agents to jail time if they try to enforce unconstitutional acts. So
1: that, All of that, really, is so that really brings up the, the question of whether state officials uh, can say no and just say, you can do what you want, but I'm not helping you. Versus states that will say, well, not only are we not helping you, but if you try that in our state, we will directly oppose you with arrest or whatever other means they think is important.
2: We have to take a quick commercial break here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More with Michael Meharren after this.
1: So, uh, that's really two different ways of handling it, but in some, in, to be honest with you, uh, no help is a very powerful tool because the federal government does not have the manpower to go out to every individual state and impose its will upon the population. They depend upon the cooperation of state law enforcement officials.
2: Exactly. It's interesting. If you go uh, and read Federalist 46, which was penned by Madison, he actually lays out this strategy in that paper. He's answering the question, what will happen if the federal government oversteps these enumerated powers? They were concerned about this before the Constitution was even ratified. And Madison lays it out in Federalist 46, and he says that the refusal to cooperate, he uses those words, the refusal to cooperate, and then he says, and even, even measures that are, that are actively imposed, he said would create very serious impediments to the federal desire. And then he goes on and says, when more than one state come together and cooperate or pass the same types of nullifications, he said it would make it virtually impossible, I'm paraphrasing, but virtually impossible for the federal act to continue on. Madison recognized the power of, even at the time, 13 states. Now we have 50 different states. There's simply no way that the federal government can do everything it wants to do by itself. And you mentioned federal law enforcement, and it's a perfect example. If you have ever look at press releases that the uh, the Department of uh, the DEA or even the, F, uh, the
1: oh, I just went
2: blank, the firearms people, Alcohol, hey, Bureau no. of alcohol, alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. If you look at these press releases, I don't think that I've ever seen one that didn't mention in cooperation with, State police, sheriff office, you know, city police, whichever, whichever it happens to be. They depend on the cooperation and the facilities of the state. So simply pulling that rug out from under them is an extremely powerful and effective method. And unfortunately, states don't do it enough, and, you know, you have the, the strings of, of uh, money that tend to get in the way. But that's a whole different issue right there.
1: Well, that really, I was just going to bring that up because what you're looking at in terms of, of various federal mandates is exactly the same thing. The federal government mandates, uh, for instance, uh, I was talking to uh, one of the sheriffs up in Avery County in North Carolina, and he was complaining about the DEA mandates on how what he has to do to handle material from a meth lab If he arrests the people and then confiscates the material, and he was complaining about the fact that the cost of handling that material, according to the federal mandate, was a lot of money was twelve hundred or two thousand dollars or something like that. And the federal government was really not reimbursing them for that cost. So he was wondering what would be his remedy, and the remedy, obviously, is to say, look, unless you're going to pay for it, in this particular case, if he was of a mind to agree, he would say, well, look, uh, I'm willing to do that, but I'm not doing it unless you pay for it. So there's now, and that, of course, goes back to the 16th Amendment, which allowed the federal government to put their hands directly into our pockets, now that made the states even less powerful when it comes to... To collecting funds uh, you know to in order to do things so the federal government uh, I'm sorry if I said misspoke there but the the 16th amendment makes the federal government more powerful in terms of forcing the states to do their will because they do uh, hold the purse strings so in talking about nullification one of the one of the things that people object to if they raise an objection is that they say it is not constitutional What do you say about that?
2: Well, I find this argument virtually every day. And the first thing that they they point to is the the supremacy clause in the Constitution. And then they misconstrue it. You know, they say the supremacy clause says that all federal law is superior to, to a state law. Well, that's not what it says. It says all laws that are in accordance to the constitution or the supreme law of the land, in pursuance of, are the exact words. That's the
1: quote. This constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land. And that clause, shall be, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, that's really the key clause,
0: isn't it?
2: Exactly. And that concludes part three of this very special interview with Michael Meharan. Tune in next week for part four.
1: No sin
0: (music) Call me railroad steel Call me the mojo man And
1: call them muddy waters And people I just love To hear that old man sing
2: Yeah, when i Coochie man,
1: I get joy in everything. Everything,
2: everything, everything,
0: gonna be all right this morning.